Well, good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. We had a kind of a good day this week, didn't we? It's been kind of wet. Glad to be here with you all. I, uh, I'm really glad to be finishing off uh, this series. I'm looking forward to going back into the book of Romans starting next week. But we are going to hit on a really, really important topic in this idea of giving. And so we are going to talk about this idea of power today. Um, I want you to know that this topic is an incredibly large topic. It's vast and it's deep. It's pervasive. And so uh, one of the struggles I had with this sermon was the sheer amount of content Uh, that I wanted to present to you all today, but could not. So I want to lead off by uh, uh, defining power a little bit, and then I want to give you a couple of resources to think about to further, uh, for your further education in this area. I want to start with the question, what is power? And uh, if you search the web and read books and look at different disciplines, physics, chemistry, you know, uh, astronomy, whatever area, they have different definitions for what power means. And my synthesis of all of the things that I read uh, comes down to this, ability plus opportunity. Now, uh, if you were an all-powerful being, then you wouldn't need Opportunity. All you would need is ability, right? But uh, for most of us, for all practical intents and purposes, we have to be able to do something, and we also have to have the opportunity. And this is the definition that we are basically functionally working with as we are going about our life. And what the sermon's going to do today is introduce a third component to this equation. You say ability plus opportunity equals power. And God says, actually, there's one more thing. It's ability plus opportunity plus obligation. So actually, if you go back to this definition and ability plus opportunity, we do have a third uh, O word in there, and that word is opinion. If we have an ability to do something and we have the opportunity to do something and it's our opinion that we want to, then we do it. And God says, no, it's actually ability plus opportunity plus obligation because, as we'll see, we are not our own. But power has a purpose. Okay? So opportunity plus ability or opportunity plus ability plus love. Um, my experience in this, I have two stories. When I turned 29, I went into a little third of a century kind of quasi midlife thing. And I just felt all down about it. And uh, knowing you know, me, I had to do something about it. So I bought a sob and a leather jacket. I bought the leather jacket actually on vacation here at Nordstrom Rack, and I still wear it to this day. And the Saab was a used one that I bought off an executive in Boston, but it was my first used car purchase. 
And uh, I was just young enough and just naive enough that I got duped. And I had some opportunity to chase this guy down. I knew where he worked. I could have showed up at work and embarrassed him or whatnot. But I just didn't have it in me to do that. And uh, to this day, it still bothers me that he had the ability and the opportunity and the opinion to dupe me, and he did. Now, the tables turned a little bit. Uh, when I was older and uh, I found myself a tenant, uh, I mean a, a landlord over a tenant, my family, we lived in a multifamily home in New York City. And one of the tenants were these Ecuadorian immigrants. And they um, uh, were very poor. He worked some minimum wage or less than minimum wage job. And so did she. And the way they got into the apartment was they lied to me and they told me they had one child. They turned out to have three more. And it was a tiny little like 550 square foot New York City apartment deal. Uh, just a fake one-bedroom thing, pretty much a studio, a little mini kitchen. And they were cooking all their meals there. And I was just very uncomfortable and upset with him the whole time that he was living there during the duration uh, uh, of his lease there. And at some point, he decided to move out. I think maybe he lost his job or something. And I saw this uh, as an opportunity to let him know just how unhappy I was uh, with him. And so... Uh, it was right for me to hold back his security deposit and, uh, you know, to examine the apartment. But everything in me felt like I shouldn't do that. This guy needed the money, his cash flow and everything. And the reason I knew this is because every month when he paid his rent, he paid with a pile of cash in just singles and maybe a five, maybe a 20, but mostly just a big stack of small denominations. And I just knew he had been scraping that together every month, he and his wife. And uh, he worked for a, uh, a jo- he worked a job where they gave they paid him in cash. And just that whole story in New York. And having been an immigrant myself, I just knew every, every on a cellular level, uh, I knew that I was supposed to not hold this security deposit and let that be his uh, last month's rent. But I did. And not only that. But I told him to come back a couple of weeks later because I was going to need a couple of weeks to do a walkthrough of his apartment. Not true. But I, I just had to exercise that power over him and let him know of my great displeasure at the way uh, he dealt with me. I had the ability and I had the opportunity and then I had the opinion Now, I have witnessed the dangers of power just coursing through my own veins. I've been the victim of its corruption. I've also tasted of its potential for good. Power is this very neutral thing. And what God intends for it and what happens to it in our hands are sometimes two very different stories. The two resources I want to recommend to you. Uh, very, very good books that I want to recommend with my whole heart. The first one is a newer book called Playing God by Andy Crouch. Andy Crouch is the editor-in-chief of a magazine called Christianity Today. He sits on the board of International Justice Mission. 
And uh, he's uh, an incredibly gifted thinker and journalist and writer. And he brings just a huge amount of uh, just his own personal experience and the breadth of the world that he's connected to. And he just talks about this idea of power. The subtitle is Redeeming the Gift of Power. Highly, highly recommended. Very well written book as well from a um, literary standpoint. Another great book that doesn't directly deal with power, but deals with opportunity and resources and our uh, obligation to be good stewards of our life here on earth. Uh, This book called Every Good Endeavor by my favorite uh, church planner, theologian, and pastor, Timothy Keller uh, of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Another well-written book, very thoughtful. Okay, and if uh, you read these, you'll get a much better handle on power, more a better one than I can give you today. I want to start uh, with the point, the source of all power, and then move on to the power of power, and then end with the purpose of power. We start in verse 8 with the source of all power. This is the most interesting verse in the story, in my opinion. The centurion uh, says to Jesus, For I myself am a man under authority. Now, this is interesting because he's a centurion. It's a, a higher ranking officer. And in the Roman government system, there is only one source of authority, and that's their God and Lord, Caesar. Okay, their phrase is Caesar is Lord. And so when the Apostle Paul says Jesus is Lord, that was a direct substitution for a phrase that already was uh, ubiquitous in Jesus' time, except it wasn't Jesus is Lord. It's Caesar is Lord. All authority comes from Caesar. And this man says, I should say, I think, instead of saying what he said, I think he should say, I am a man with authority. I'm a man who has great power. But uh, uh, the reason I know this is because I tell my servants what to do and they do it. But because he's under the Roman government, he understands this thing called the chain of command. And he understands that nobody actually has authority except for Caesar. Caesar's word is the law. That is power. And so anybody who exercises authority under Caesar is literally under Caesar's authority. They don't possess anything. It's just simply trickling down from above. It's borrowed. And this authority has a purpose, and it's Caesar's purpose. Now, what's remarkable about this statement is he then moves further to say that you also are a man under authority. Right? I also am a man under authority, just like you. Do you realize what the centurion is saying? I understand that there's only one source of authority. And my people say, my system tells me it's Caesar. But actually, what I'm saying is that I'm acknowledging that your God, Yahweh, the God of the Jews, He alone is the source of all authority. There is no other authority. Therefore, if you give the word, 
And this is something my so-called Lord cannot do. If you give the word, my servant will be healed. Because my servant is not my servant. My servant is not Caesar's servant. My servant is actually your servant because your God is Lord. Remarkable statement of faith coming from a centurion. And so Jesus commends him for his faith and says, I haven't seen anything like this even in the house of Israel. It's amazing, right? What does authority mean? It's the Greek word exousia. It's different than the word power, which is the word dunamis. And so authority is not just might, but it's might plus right. Not as in you are correct, but you are entitled. You are legitimate. Authority is might plus right. And this centurion soldier is saying that God alone is the source of all authority. We catch a glimpse of this, Andy Crouch says, in Genesis chapter 1. You know, when God was creating the world, he says, let there be light. Now, if God was just might, he would say, I'm going to create light. I'm going to make light happen because you know who I am. No, he doesn't assert power, but he assumes it. Let there be and it shall be. Why? Because I have might plus right. I'm fully legitimate. All of everything belongs to me. I have all authority over it. I just give the word. I say come and it comes. I say go and it goes. I say be healed and it's healed. Say the word. Let there be light and there is light. That's authority. And the centurion soldier in his faith, in his humility, in his wisdom acknowledges that God is the source Of all authority. John chapter 10 verse 18. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Jesus acknowledging. Agreeing with the centurion soldier. That God alone has authority and has given this authority to him. Nobody killed Jesus. Nobody made him do anything he did not want to do. It was not the nails that held him up on the cross. It was his of own accord. And this authority, this might and right, he received from the Father. This means that everybody else, You, me, governments, structures, kings, thrones, powers, holders of weapons, whoever has ability and opportunity and opinion or obligation, whoever you are, whatever you are, whenever you are, you are all under authorities. We're all under God. And if we are under God, God, 
that means that authority is trickling down. And if it's trickling down, that means whatever is trickling down comes with a purpose. It comes with a job. It comes with orders. Do I have the authority to say come? Yeah, if I do, it's because that authority is trickling down and somebody else is telling me to tell the servant to come or to be healed or to go or let there be. There is such a thing as authority and it comes from God. I love thinking about this because it's done such a great work in me of helping me to be who I am. If I'm a parent, it's, they're not my kids. I don't get to just practice my opinion and ability and opportunities on them. I don't get to live vicariously through them because somebody else is living through them. I don't get to just have them come and go as I please, at my will, at my whim. And my kids love knowing that I'm a man under authority, that I answer to somebody. When I was planting churches as a leader and as a pastor, it was wonderful for the church to know that we belong to something larger called a denomination. And I was writing monthly reports to this higher authority. They loved to know that I couldn't just say stuff and do stuff. That I was submitting to truth. And that there was a body of people making sure what I said was true was actually true. They love the checks and balances and the accountability and the support system. They love knowing I was an under authority, that I belonged. If you work, if you're an employer, your people below you will trust you and love you and respect you more if you aren't the very top person. They want to know that you are an under authority because on some deep intuitive level, we understand that we are all under authorities, that there's only one source of authority, and that is God. Who else is the source? There's nobody else. And this is a very freeing thing. I can speak confidently because why? I stand behind this thing. Well, what is this thing? It's a, it's a symbol. Symbol of what? That I'm not talking my own talk. Why do we preach from the Bible? Because we are practicing under authority. There is a word. And we don't get to speak the final one. Second, the power of power. Verse 4, incredibly interesting verse as well. Now, this is the Jewish elders, the religious leaders talking, and they're making this stuff up. This isn't coming from the centurion. As we will see, this is the opposite of what the centurion soldier would say and ends up saying to Jesus. The elders say, this man deserves to have you do this because. Let me ask a question. How does the word deserve get into our thinking? When does that happen? Like, I think the word predates America. Like, we're not the only entitled creatures on the face of the planet, ever. 
What about this word because? Because what? What's on, what's on the end of that sentence for you? How about, I deserve to have you do this because? How does that sentence finish for you? Which is harder for me? Okay, answer this question. Which is harder for me? Working as a pastor or failing as a pastor? Working, the actual work, the day-to-day of preparing my sermons and making decisions and thinking. Nobody knows what pastors do. I'm not about to tell you what pastors do. But the work that I supposedly do as a pastor, the work that I purportedly do as a pastor, that's way easier than failing as a pastor. Because underneath the work of a pastor, there's another kind of work that's driving. You know, what's, what's, what's the work of being a parent? What's the work of being a doctor or a mother or a friend? Underneath this work that we do, there's another work. This, this fear of failure, of anxieties, of uncertainty, of grasping at the meaning of life and grasping at esteem and value. That really is the harder work. That's what makes work so tiring and fatiguing. That's what wears and tears at me. Not the work of preparing, reading, and putting this thing together. But it's the thought that, oh man, this isn't coming together. And if it doesn't come together, then I'm going to look like a fool. And if I am a fool, then what? That I'm not going to deserve. That it's the deserve. It's the because. Underneath all of the living and the working that you and I do, there is another kind of living, another kind of work, another stream that's flowing. And that's what's really challenging. That's the stuff that's eating away at you. What's underneath power? You know, if you really think about it, power is just a means. But what is it a means to? What do you hope to get from power? What is, in other words, the power of power? What about power causes power to have power over us? What leads to the corruption and the decay in our character? Let me ask it another way. And I'm intentionally not giving you straight up answers here. I'm asking questions. Here's another question. Is power edible? Am I able to draw nutrients from it? Am I able to extract life and sustenance from power? What happens to power when it enters my system? When power is coursing through my veins, what is my body, my, my emotional and spiritual selves trying to suck out of power? Why, when I was 
exercising that power over that Ecuadorian family. What did that do for me? And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? See, when power is in our veins, it has an intoxicating effect. It tends to impair us. And things, things, just random everyday things, they become poisonous to us in the hands of somebody in whose veins power flows. And often when we are standing outside of power, we don't understand the extent to which power can be poisonous. The power of power is invisible to those who don't have it. But you see the thing that it does to people. Let me read you this incredibly poignant quote. Uh, this is from the book Every Good Endeavor. Uh, and it's quoting, actually, another author named Benjamin Nugent. He's the author of a book called Good Kids. And writing for the New York Times, as an author, he writes this. Monomania is what it sounds like. A, patho a pathologically intense focus on one thing. First, my writing became overthought. And then it went rank with the odor of desperation. It took me a long time to realize that the utter domination of my consciousness by the desire to write well was itself the problem. Monomania had crept into my soul and spoiled it by degrees. When good writing was my only goal, it made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. For this reason, I wasn't able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell whether something I had just written was good or bad because I needed it to be good in order to feel sane. I lost the ability, that's impairment, I lost the ability to cheerfully interrogate how much I liked what I had written to see what was actually on the page rather than what I wanted to see or what I feared to see. Isn't that good? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And this is a sobering reminder that we are not made to possess power. We are not made to wield power at our will or whim. That ability plus opportunity plus opinion is the recipe for poison. And taken to its most extreme when power is grasped at and we take it into our hands and ingest it into our system. Taken to its fullest extent, it's demonic. 
and a third of the angels have fallen prey to the poison of power in their system. And that's why power has a purpose. And that's why God, by necessity, remains the sole source of power. Verse 2 and 7 point to an incredibly interesting uh, truth about the centurion, that though he was in a position of power, though he was under Caesar, though he had servants he can dictate to come or to go, who obeyed him under threat of their lives, yet remained humble. And verse 2 gives us a clue initially. Here's a centurion who deeply values and loves his servant, That's not normal. Servants were disposable commodities. If you had one and they displeased you in any way, you kill them, literally. And here, the centurion is broken and torn up about his servant, values the servant. What centurion does that? What powerful person does that? And then in verse 7, we understand that he even called the Jewish leaders, the elders to him people he had uh, some political connections to because he didn't consider himself worthy. He wasn't working the system. He felt unworthy of working the system. He knew he had a right to ask. My goodness, of course, he deserves it because he built their synagogue and he was good to their people. He had lots and lots of chips to cash in, but he refused to do it. Of course, Jesus might have responded more when he shows up personally, but he wasn't worthy, so he sent Jesus' own people to him. There's humility there. Why? And we learned through Jesus' commendation of his act that this centurion understood that power has an author. That power has one lone source and if power flows because it has one source this river has a mouth that it's flowing from if that's the case the reason it flows is because there is a purpose and the purpose is predetermined by the source therefore those who are under that authority by virtue of understanding this dynamic have a humility about them If you are exercising authority and you don't understand that your authority comes from above, then you are not going to be humble. If you meet someone and they are powerful, but they're not humble, there isn't this paradoxical juxtaposition of power and humility. If you don't see that, they are deluded people. Ability plus opportunity plus the obligation given to the holder of that authority by the source of that authority. Your opportunities, your abilities come with obligation. The life you now live in the flesh You live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. Your life is not your own. 
the energy you have, the heart that beats within you, the dreams that you dream, the money that you spend, the opportunities that come and go, the time that flows. All of that comes with obligation. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 spells out Jesus and his understanding of himself as an under-authority. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And there he is, out of his own accord, exercising the authority given to him by God the Father to be a servant and to die. What we see in the life of Jesus is that though he was God, he abdicated, he practiced restraint to God's lordship. And over the, uh, over the centuries, our spiritual mothers and our fathers, what we have come to call our practice of the ultimate spiritual discipline which Jesus practiced by dying on the cross for us, that ultimate act of abdication and restraint, we do on a micro level because we don't die on the cross. That's what Jesus did instead of us. We do what the Spirit wants us to do. We're not going to be our own heroes. We're not each other's heroes. Jesus is the one and only hero. And he died on the cross already for us. But what we do, walking in his pathway that he blazed for us, uh, these the spiritual mothers and fathers have called spiritual disciplines. This is what the Lenten season about. This is the 46th day before um, Easter Sunday. And uh, during this time, the Christian church historically practices what's called a Lenten fast. This is when we acknowledge our own mortality. We take on a confessional posture. And this is where we're acknowledging Jesus is Lord. And because he practiced restraint and abdication, we are going to do that on a micro level. And that's why I want to encourage all of us as a church to practice different Lenten fasts uh, this year. Uh, I want to give you four ideas. I've given you many over the, uh, over the last month, but I want to give you four more uh, final ideas for uh, practicing a fast. The first one uh, is my most guarded spiritual discipline, and it's uh, what's called the Sabbath. And what this means is that as a way to experience the restraint of your power and to acknowledge your own mortality 
and simultaneously your own value apart from your productivity, you take one day out of the week and you refuse to do anything that you would consider to be work. Now, if yard work is life-giving to you, do that on your Sabbath. If doing the taxes is uh, recreational for you, it's just so life-giving, we need people like you in this world. And feel free to do that on your Sabbath. Uh, But otherwise, don't do it. Refrain from doing work. And part of the beauty of the Sabbath is unproductivity. When you just at the end of the day go, wow, I feel like I just kind of wasted my day. That's when you know you've had a kind of Sabbath uh, that is actually a rest day. Now, a caveat to that is if you do this, if you practice the Sabbath, but you don't have what I would call a chore day, a separate day where you do all the work that you have to get done during the week, like fixing stuff around the house or paying your bills or dropping things off at the dry cleaning store. If you do that on your Sabbath, then you're not going to have much of a Sabbath. So here's my spiritual discipline challenge number one. For the next six weeks, today's the first Sunday in Lent, pick out one day, right? And coordinate with your people in your life so that it's possible. Coordinate one day where you're not going to do work. Six times practice this. And then pick one other day where you're going to make a list of all the chores you have to do and do it all on that day or the other days, but don't do it on your Sabbath day. Okay, that's idea number one. Idea number two, we've been talking about this. And, uh, you know, Kevin actually last week talked about money during our series about money. So that was, that was a bit interesting. I've been trying to stay away from money because, you know, I didn't want to... Um, fulfill the stereotype that preachers love to talk about money. But this is my idea number two, because tithing has become such a cornerstone of my, how I discipline my relationship to money, that I would just love for you to give it a try for six weeks. For six weeks, take 10% of your income and tithe it. Give it away. It doesn't even have to be to this church, though I would not be upset if it was to this church. I have a little story about this. Uh, I've never gone gambling before or, prior, uh, or after this incident, but uh, when I was in seminary in graduate school studying theology, I went with some of my theolog- theolo- theological student friends to celebrate one of their birthdays at Foxwoods, which is a, a new casino in the East Coast. And uh, somebody else who wasn't going with us gave me two quarters, and this is my gift to you. Can you um, do something with it? And so I didn't know what to do. I got there and I stuck one quarter in the slot machine and then it was gone. Then I stuck the second quarter in and like 80 bucks came out. It was amazing. So you know what I did? I gave that $80 to my friends whose birthday it was and he bought us dinner with it. It was great. Um, But before I did, I took out a tithe of it, a tenth of it, and I gave it to my church. I didn't even think about it. Oh, money in? Got to tithe it. And if I was like a health and wealth gospel preacher, I'd say, and then, because I tithe, I want even more. No, that's not true. (laughs) Idea number three, it's uh, community. 
If I ask all the new people that have been coming to our church, what made you stick? What are the things that made you stick? One of the stories that keep re-emerging is that somebody invited them to coffee or dinner in their home. Like that creates stickiness. You know, and that creates a really nice kind of openness and a feeling of connectedness. Right? And so I want to challenge you, and Susie and I have been doing this a lot, several times a week, every week for the last year and a half. I've gotten to know a lot of you. So I want to challenge you for the next six weeks, invite somebody to your house that you don't know very well or you don't know at all. Just take the leap, take the step and say, hey, my name is blank, 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 and this is my family, blank, blank, and would you, would you guys like to come over for dinner sometime? Not like the Northwest, oh, we should hang out sometime and never do it kind of thing. But actually, like, do the legwork of setting a date and chasing somebody down and getting it on the calendar and thinking about a menu and, like, do that. And I promise you, it's, it's going to be way more fun than you thought it was going to be. And people are so surprising and so weird and it's so rewarding. Okay? My fourth idea is uh, for Lenten fast is forgiveness as a way to exercise your power is to forgive. And specifically, I want to ask you to forgive this church. For some of you who have been here a long time and you're upset at us for not being the church we used to be or we're doing things differently or we did things, you know, and you're not up on it because you weren't, or you're not, you're not up on it because you weren't up on it. Something like that. I had a f- cool phrase, but it's gone. Oh, people are down on what they're not up on. That was the phrase. <laughs> Listen to this quote. The best trustees of institutions are those that have forgiven them. Can we move on together? Would you release this church? Please forgive. Allow us to move step forward into the future. Step with us. Release this church and her leaders and her history and her present and the future into God's good hands. So do that. Take the next six weeks to think through your grievances for this church or me or I don't care. And let's go. You have the power, the opportunity, the ability, and the obligation to do that. Now I, on on the Enneagram scale, uh, type personality type, I'm a type 8. That means that that's called a powerful person. That means that I like power, I'm drawn to power. I'm happy when I have power. And I surround myself with people that will give me power. What should I do for a living? Now, I've been praying uh, for God to help me to be a good type 8. You know, there's a shadow side and there's a light side. And I want to walk well in the light side of this Type 8. And the turning point came when I was uh, praying for the gift of healing. And that's another longer story that actually you can hear if you go to our new uh, uh, website. By the way, finally, we got ourselves an iTunes link. 
so that you can subscribe to the podcast of the sermon. That's in the loop and on the website. Uh, so go, go celebrate by uh, subscribing to our sermons. But uh, I was praying for healing, and I heard this voice speaking to me. And the question was this, and this is the question I want to leave you with today. The question is, what good is power without love? If you were to wield power, yet you have no love in your heart, would you pray with me? Father, in humility and uh, with sobriety, we come to you and acknowledge that you alone are the source of this gift called power. And in your hands, power is safe and it's effective and it's what we need. Our neediness, our vacuous nature cannot bear the weight of power. And yet you call us by the power of your spirit to exercise it, to steward it for the good, to build your kingdom, to love people around us, and to turn this world into a reflection, reflection of your heart of love towards us. So I pray that you would help us to do that with conscientiousness, with humility, with diligence. And I pray as Jesus did, that we would lay down our lives of our own accord because this command we have received from you. We lift ourselves up to you. We lift up this church. And especially as a church that's on Mercer Island, purported to have powerful people in this church, powerful people on this island, strategically located. It's an opportunity, an ability, an obligation to do amazing ministry and work here. Empower us to do that, we pray. Not by our might, nor by our power, but by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.